morning and welcome to Rising. We have a show today that will take your breath away. <laughs> What's going on? Well, Robbie, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis is with us to discuss some new developments out of Ukraine, and we'll discuss a status update on Edward Snowden. But first, as Hurricane Ian continues to track toward Florida, The Hill reported yesterday that the White House and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are working together in their response to the hurricane expected to hit Florida hard in the coming days. However, according to Biden's press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the two haven't actually spoken. She also insisted that their political differences are not an issue. Here's DeSantis on some of the efforts that are ongoing in Florida. The Florida National Guard has activated 5,000 Florida Guardsmen, as well as 2,000 additional Guardsmen from Tennessee, Georgia, and North Carolina that have been activated to help. We've also have five urban search and rescue teams that are activated. We have Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission mobilized and ready to support needed efforts. And of course, the U.S. Coast Guard is also willing and able to assist in both preparation and response. Yeah, I mean, it's good to hear that uh, <laughs> the people in our government can put aside their pointless partisan bickering uh, when there is a real emergency on hand. And this sounds like a real emergency. This sounds like a very serious um, storm. If you've, I've just started looking at the kind of uh, coverage of it, it looks like it could be very bad. So, so yes, the, the, let's put the politics aside uh, for a few minutes, please. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to see, you know, I'm old enough to remember some, you know, sort of heartwarming moments from uh, emergencies past. I also remember uh, some moments where bipartisanship reflected negatively because of the partisan rancor between the parties. When folks did come together over these kind of moments, it was, oh, Chris Christie, why are you uh, patting Obama on the back or shaking his hand or whatever, oh, you know, sure. those kind of moments. So I, I'm hopeful that that is not what emerges out of this uh, crisis in Florida. And I'm also really interested to hear whether or not this spurs a different kind of conversation about what to do about the increasing frequency of these kinds of weather events. Well, meanwhile, Hurricane Ian strengthened into a Category 3 storm early this morning. It's currently over western Cuba and is moving north into the Gulf of Mexico for what uh, looks like it's going to be a damning strike on Florida. The Washington Post reports that the Tampa Bay region, which boasts nearly 700 miles of shoreline and more than 3 million residents, is one of the most vulnerable places in the U.S. to face severe flooding if a hurricane of this magnitude were to hit this area directly. Yesterday, the Tampa Bay mayor braced residents for the severity of the hurricane. Let's watch that. This is going to be a storm like we have not seen in the past. Unless there's something that changes drastically, even a, if it tracks on the most westerly path, we're still going to have high winds and we're going to have storm surges. Hmm. Mandatory and voluntary evacuations totaling over 300,000 people have been ordered along Florida's west coast. And according to the Fox Forecast Center, the storm surge could reach as high as 10 feet along portions of Florida's coast. This video shows huge lines of cars waiting for free sandbags in St. Petersburg, a city on Florida's Gulf Coast and part of the Tampa area, as residents brace for the storm. Mm. There have been some evacuations uh, ordered, I think, for certain counties and then voluntary evacuations uh, for others. Certainly, if you, you know, if you can get out of the area, um, it, that sounds like a good, a good plan for right now because it's going to be a, a very massive storm at the, in, in, in the 
the best case scenario, like, yeah. like she was yeah. saying, is going to be a very bad storm. Storm the likes of which we've not seen before yeah. is a huge headliner yeah. for a state like Florida, which has certainly seen its fair share. Right. I believe the last hurricane to break, uh, to make it to the to land in Florida was uh, like three or four years ago now. Yeah. I can't remember which one. They all run together, the names for, you don't, I'm sure they don't if you live there. Sure. I'm sure you remember exactly where you were when, you know, what, whichever one it was struck. Um, and then there was a more recent one that hit Louisiana, mm. um, which I don't recall the name of either. Mm. Um, you know, uh, us in our safety, our safe enclaves in the, re- relatively safer enclaves in the north, although obviously hurricanes have hit places like New York and Virginia as well. And, Certainly. Uh, we, and might, we might be getting some light rain eventually up here, but nothing and not even close to what they're going to see in, uh, in the panhandle. Yeah, well, we'll keep you posted on what's going on in Florida as those evacuations continue. And we hear up next, Robbie, that you have some exclusive reporting in your radar. I do. I'm looking forward to that as well. Stick around. Okay, Robbie, what's on your radar today? All right. Well, I've got some exclusive breaking uh, reporting. This has just gone live, and you can read the full article at uh, Reason.com, or if you look at my Twitter feed, it's there. But I'm also just going to read it to you now, so you can just listen up. President Joe Biden's plan to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan debt violates both federal law and the Constitution, according to a just-filed lawsuit from the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is a libertarian law firm. This isn't how laws are supposed to be made, Caleb Kruckenberg, an attorney for PLF, told me. Only Congress has the power to pass laws and spend money under the Constitution. The administration's actions here are flagrantly illegal. So this is the first serious challenge to Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, which he announced last month and we've talked on the show, talked about on the show exhaustively. The lawsuit's plaintiff is Frank Garrison, who's also an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Garrison borrowed federal student loans to pay for law school. But according to him, Biden's debt forgiveness plan will actually subject him to a financial penalty in the form of a state tax. So this gives him standing to sue the U.S. Education Department, his lawsuit argues. Quote, despite the staggering scope of this regulatory action, it was taken with breathtaking informality and opaqueness, the lawsuit claims. In the rush, the administration has created new problems for borrowers in at least six states that tax loan cancellations as income. According to Garrison, he is already receiving debt relief under the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. That's PSLF, not PLF, which is the law firm. PSLF is the loan forgiveness program uh, for borrowers who work in public service at nonprofit organizations. So qualifying borrowers who make a certain number of payments and then meet maximum income requirements can have the rest of their debts forgiven by PSLF. Garrison expects to qualify in about four years for that forgiveness. Now, importantly, debt relief under PSLF, that program, is not subject to state taxes. Biden's broad forgiveness plan, however, will be taxed as income in Indiana, where Garrison resides, as well as Wisconsin, North Carolina, Minnesota, Mississippi, and Arkansas. Garrison will be, quote, stuck with a tax bill that makes him financially worse off than continuing with his repayment program under PSLF, according to the lawsuit. He did not ask for cancellation, doesn't want it, and has no way to opt out of it. The administration's slapdash lawmaking by press release approach to student debt cancellation threatens to leave tens of thousands of borrowers stuck with a tax bill on money they'll never see in states like Indiana, where it will be taxed as income, says Kruckenberg. 
Now, while the Pacific Legal Foundation's theory is that this gives Garrison standing to sue the Education Department, the lawsuit's case against the Biden Forgiveness Plan is that part is actually much more straightforward. We talked about it on the show. The Pacific Legal Foundation is arguing that Biden has violated both the Constitution and the Administrative Procedure Act, which gives Congress, rather than the president, the power to make new regulations. Biden's new plan will forgive up to $20,000 worth of debt for many borrowers, and the plan could cost U.S. taxpayers anywhere between $300 billion and a $1 trillion. A low estimate of the cost per individual taxpayer is $2,000, $2,100. The administration has claimed that it has the power to unilaterally forgive student loan debts without consulting Congress. As justification, Biden has cited 2003's Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students, or the HEROES Act. So this law gave the president some authority to cancel or delay student loan repayments during national emergencies, with the clear intention of offering relief to borrowers who were serving in combat operations during the war on terror. Biden's view is that the COVID-19 pandemic counts as a national emergency, even though he has now declared it definitively over. Remember that? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. PLF's lawsuit takes issue with the pandemic's just, the pandemic-based justification for debt relief, noting that the harms purportedly ameliorated with debt forgiveness are not, quote, a direct result of the, quote, national emergency as required by the HEROES Act. To the extent the statute can arguably justify the cancellation, the major questions doctrine requires a clear authorization by Congress of such an economically and politically significant action, which is lacking here. That's from the lawsuit. Loan forgiveness is set to kick in, by the way, sometime next month. So we'll see. So there it is, Brianna. Uh, here is the lawsuit that could potentially uh, derail the student loan forgiveness. Uh, you know, we've talked about the actual legal argument, and you know, I think you have conceded that the kind of pandemic justification is maybe not the strongest um, case for no, doing this. No, it's not the strongest. But part of the argument that I made then is that it wasn't and still isn't too late for them to simply mm -hmm. use the other authority. So there's two things here. One, what this gentleman that you're referencing here is arguing is as, as a case for standing. Yeah. So their claims are so tenuous that it, the, the biggest hurdle many people thought that they might face is even having someone with a, a claim that can be adjudicated in this context, a claim that is proximate enough to the harm that they can even have standing here as opposed to people like Ted Cruz who just don't like the policy right. because they... Right just don't like it. Well, so what do you make of this very creative standing argument? So I think for one, because we actually don't have language yet, the same reasons that I think Biden should just use the, 2000, uh, the 1965 uh, uh, Education Act instead of the HEROES Act, he could, he could make that switch and he could easily create uh, an out that would allow people to opt out of this program, thus ending this person's efforts. It seems to me, I'm not you know, a legal expert on this particular area, but we're all talking about a policy that hasn't been enacted yet. And so when I was speaking to uh, Florida Pro Professor Jed Sugarman on my show about this, the point that he was making is that any claims would have to wait until there's actually you know, action on these kinds of policies. And until that time, they, and there's ample opportunity for uh, Joe Biden to make this as fair as possible to, for people. So if this person is going to be disadvantaged by uh, the tax implications of this policy, I think that's a bad thing. And I'm looking forward to Joe Biden taking this opportunity for him to actually remedy that 
that mm -hmm. behavior. Now, what we know is going on here is not that this person is actually having a qualm about their taxes. It's about a broader effort to use a fringe case to try to take down a policy that is going to help 44 million Americans who are middle class and low income people who are too poor to pay to go to college. So I hope this guy brings some cookies to work or has some really good water cooler conversation because he's going to have a lot of co-workers here. He does public interest work. He's taking advantage of a, of a government program to make it easier for him to pay his loans off. And there are a lot of people in his cohort who I'm sure would be, be very much advantaged by Biden's student debt policy. So I hope he's a real charmer because he might not be making a lot of well, friends at work right now. Well, he, now he works for Pacific <laughs> Legal Foundation, which is the mm. place. So they they agree, you know, ideologically with trying to prevent this. Uh, I mean, I think he would say, I don't know, I think he would say that the loan forgiveness program he is using was authorized by Congress, is subject to democratic decision making, is, you know, the, the lawmakers are accountable to the people. So that's fine. What, what Biden just declared without suddenly, without uh, any uh, input from, uh, from the normal lawmaking, rulemaking process is not how the Constitution thinks our government should function. It's not for just the executive to declare laws and Congress to be, Congress to be the pontification branch and the executive to be the sole you know, lawmaking, all the functions of the executive and the, and the legislative role. That's not what, how our, how our yeah, system is supposed I to totally work. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I wish that Republicans would come forward with with a with a, with a policy, too. any policy at all, to address this crisis that's affecting tens of millions of Americans. Regretfully, they aren't. George Bush is the, is the person under whom the public loan interest uh, policy was enacted, and Democrats were able to join that on a bipartisan base, basis to do something good for the country. Unfortunately, Republicans are in a place where they are unwilling to vote for anything. They're really unwilling to support a child tax credit that halved uh, child poverty. They're unwilling to vote for any of the COVID relief reforms that came down uh, the transom over the past two years that kept the economy going and enabled America to keep uh, on, the, on the straight and narrow. And so, you know, unfortunately, because of the bipartisan, uh, the failure of bipartisanship and the real rancor coming out of the right and antipathy that they seem to have for student borrowers as a whole. I mean, you heard what Ted Cruz said about, you know, baristas and, and, and um, uh, basket weavers or whatever uh, being the the, 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 the central actors and the central beneficiaries of these kinds of programs, and we know that couldn't be further from the truth. They talk with complete and total contempt for the student borrower population. So unfortunately, we're not going to have a bipartisan effort on this. I would like to see it. And fortunately, there happens to be good legal authority for the president to act with executive authority on issues of extreme education emergencies, which of course we were in because of a crisis that has been created, in part because of people like Joe Biden. So he can do this. He should do this, and I look forward to any tweaks that have to happen to the plan, as flagged by um, good reporting like yours. As a, a crisis created by the stu the the, bar the loaning program, I mean, let's have Democrats put forward a plan again. If, if the well, way we well, talk one independent about senator from Vermont certainly has put to get put yeah. forward a plan, and it's right there for everyone to vote on. So if you are a conservative that really hopes for the the root causes of the student loan crisis to be addressed, you should encourage your representatives to go ahead and vote for Bernie's plan to make public colleges and universities tuition free I think and we the, can get rid of this federal loan program that's yes. really helped to raise the cost of colleges. Well, and I think the income uh, income derived repayment 
is a good idea or a, 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 a healthier way to pay for college than this, but not still with the middleman of the loans. Just make it generally true that you pay to the college some percentage of your income after you graduate for some period of time. I would be fine with that. I think that makes perfect sense. But right now, you're going to be repay a loan that way. So it's, it's, it, we're adding an extra step that just makes it so the, the institution will raise tuition, will get, will confiscate, will take all the loan money, and then you're paying your you know, your income back to the taxpayer. It won't be nearly as much as the loan was. Yeah, I, I see it's what you're bad, saying. I agree, but bad. I mean, the reality is that colleges are unlikely to agree to that because under the current model, well, they are even, because they can have the loan program right now. We'll right. get rid of that and then we'll let them fend for themselves. Right. I mean, I think that the, the fundamental issue, if you value colleges and you value people's ability to get an education and you value having an educated workforce and, and country, is to have free, accessible colleges for all, not for us to just kind of, you know, ruefully root for the destruction of the college system. Now, there's certainly colleges that I have no affinity for who have enormous endowments and don't use those endowments to support right. their students. I think it's unconscionable, frankly, that I have friends from uh, Harvard who came from inner city neighborhoods, went back and became teachers in their schools, and Harvard is asking them to pay $40,000 a year for undergraduate uh, tuition when they have you know, hundreds of millions, maybe more, in their endowment. And we're um, subsidizing them. Right. Through the loan program. <laughs> right. Um, at the same time, I wish we did live in a world, I don't think it's, it's right to say, let's have a policy structured as an attack on the education system, an attack on the education system, which people like Ronald Reagan spearheaded in the 1980s after there was integration at these schools and it was explicitly understood and explicitly said by so many conservatives that these schools have people whose politics we don't like. So you want to censor them and shut down their ability to, to, to come together on these education campus and camp, uh, educational uh, opportunities to defund the, the University of California system for that explicit political purpose. So I think we have to do both things. We have to support public colleges and universities so we can have true free freedom of speech and expression well, at the uh, same time that we unwind some of the perverse financial incentives that have been set unwind up. Unwind the perverse financial incentives. I don't agree with you that it should be free, but it should certainly be affordable. It used to be affordable, and then we have all these policies that have made it absolutely unaffordable and you know, uh, immiserate people by trapping them in, in debt. Let's have policies that go back to where it was, where if you, if you wanted the college degree, you could pay for it. It was possible to, to pay your way through it. Should and primary you school the, be, be free, in your opinion, Robbie? Primary school should be free, yes. And what distinction do you make between tw 12th grade being free uh, and freshman year being free? If we, the more credentialing we do, the more there's no then benefit. There's no benefit that you can get by doing it over everyone else. It's just an extra hoop we add to society before you can work. It's actually destroying productivity by making it. So it cheapens the degree. I think that was a really honest thing that you just said, and I think that's a problem that we understand that college attainment is a way to keep a, a kind of a class hierarchy where some people or more or better and more qualified and get more opportunities than other folks. And yes, it cheapens a college degree if everyone can have one. That's a problem. Then it will be I a think, graduate degree. I then it will be a PhD. Then it will be people will be 50 years old still getting the next edu still getting the next certificate as long as we keep subsidizing it or making it free. There'll no, be think, no end to I, it. I think that you have to go to college to get certain jobs. You have to go to college to be a doctor, you have to be, go to college to be a teacher and that those kind of jobs should be You have be to go accessible. to college to be a teacher? Yes. And that those kind of jobs should be accessible to all. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of jobs you don't need to go to college for, and we're making it so that you do have to go to college for all jobs because we've subsidized it. No, <laughs> Robbie, you can't make it. You you can't you can't play those kinds of games. If you don't have to go to college for a job, don't go to college for a job. But also, don't sit here and pretend that vocational school doesn't cost money. That people don't have barriers to doing that too. All of those things should be free. When we're talking about free higher education, it is also vocational schools. It's community colleges. This isn't a class issue unless you maintain that only some people should have access to the next stepping stone to do any profession that they want to do. It cannot be the case that only rich people have an ability to go to college and access Not the kinds of jobs. People. Not that often afford people. the greatest remuneration. It used to be the case not only only it was not only rich people who go to who go to college. You could pay your way and you could make it work, and we should go back to that. That was great because the primary beneficiary of the so college degree affordable? is the person themselves. What, what's affordable? What's the maximum price that you see college? You anticipate college should cost. Well, it should be. It should be the again the way it was. I mean, keeping up with inflation, you should be able to if well, you work a job or if you work nice for free or close to being free. Nominal costs for some books and things like that. So if that's what you're saying, then we're in agreement. But if there is some performative way that you think that a college is still cost twelve thousand dollars a year instead of sixty thousand dollars a year or something like that, that's a big we have difference. To, it is a big difference, but unfortunately, we live in a country where a lot, where 40% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency, much less $12,000 a year in tuition. Well, <laughs> all right. Here we hit, we had uh, we had the debate again, and uh, we'll have more rising right after this. Yesterday, Russian President Vladimir Putin granted citizenship to Edward Snowden, the former National Security Agency contractor who blew the whistle on the mass surveillance of Americans' phone records. Snowden fled to Russia back in 2013 and is still wanted by Washington on charges of espionage. State Department spokesman Ned Price reacted to the news. Let's watch. Our position has not changed. Mr. Snowden should return to the United States where he uh, should face justice as any other American citizen would. Perhaps the only thing that has changed is that as a result of his Russian citizenship, uh, apparently now he may well be conscripted to fight in Russia's war in Ukraine. I think that's a pretty obnoxious talking point. Um, I, I doubt that <laughs> Russia is going to they, conscript they said that they Edward won't. Snowden, they first said of all. He doesn't qualify because you have to have, to have had prior military service right. in Russia. Um, look, and I'm totally against conscription. I mean, I was against the U.S. draft, um, et cetera. Russia should not be doing this. What Russia is doing is monstrous, et cetera. We have that set aside now. But the only reason Snowden is in Russia is because he could face criminal charges here stemming from his whistleblowing, stemming from informing the American people in the world that the government was lying about its mass surveillance program. So if we don't want him to be in Russia or being treated favorably by the Russian government, or we view Russia as bad, and, and we should because Russia is bad, and the things they're doing are illiberal and wrong, then we should welcome Snowden back to the US. We should have tried to get him back here by offering him a blanket pardon and then giving him like a medal of honor for revealing the crimes of our government. Right. So it's, the harm is uh, the, U, the U.S. put him in this situation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the framing from you know liberals and, 
the, the administration figures and the, and the State Department figures seems to be, oh, this is proof that he was a traitor. This is proof that he is a bad actor because he wants to ally with Russia, completely ignoring the fact that he applied for dual citizenship in 2020 and has said after he received permanent residency that year um, that he and his wife would, quote, remain Americans, raising our son with all the values of the America we love, including the freedom to speak his mind. So he's making his own political statement here, obviously, mm -hmm. to say, I don't, to your point, I don't want to not be an American. I don't want to not live in America. But what does it say that my own country is treating me more illiberally than a country that can be rightly criticized for its infringements on speech like Russia? Now, obviously, Russia has its own political game that they're playing here and, and kind of performatively welcome, welcoming uh, Snowden to make itself look more liberal than America. But why is America enabling that effort? Right. We could easily short circuit that effort. Right. It would be the easiest thing in the world to say he will not face criminal charges. He is pardoned. What he did was was correct, and more people who work for the government should come forward if they uncover wrongdoing. Um, and it, it is funny. I saw uh, Matt Gates tweeted, for instance, pardon Snowden. Mm. It, it is. It's been fascinating to see the transformation of uh, you know so many Republicans or even conservative pundits were so aghast at things that Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and and uh, and Chelsea Manning had done years ago, and now perceive and have watched and and have real grievances in some cases. Cases mm -hmm. about how law enforcement, the FBI and national intelligence agencies have sort of shifted during the Trump years and now are anti-Trump and, and have, have done some of those violations of due process and now understand. Meanwhile, some Democrats, not all, not, they're still very good people on the left, but some of the more mainstream Democrats have become more deferential to law enforcement because they perceive yep. law enforcement to be anti-Trump. What a way to fumble the bag for <laughs> Democrats. This should be their issue. Uh, meanwhile, Snowden himself said on Twitter, quote, after years of separation from our parents, my wife and I, no desire to be separated from our sons. After two years of waiting and nearly 10 years of exile, a little stability will make a difference for my family. I pray for privacy for them and for us all. Mm. Some of our friends are sharing their thoughts on the matter. Narrowing in uh, on the Post reporting, journalist Matt Taibbi said, I guess we're rewriting history of the story uh, to merely be an, uh, an intelligence leak and not of the disclosure of a massive illegal surveillance program, thanks Washington Post. Glenn Greenwald accused the Washington Post of maligning Snowden, once an important source to the Post. Glenn said, it's extra weird for the Washington Post of all papers to do this since they congratulated themselves for sharing in the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for having published hundreds of Snowden's documents. Incredible. Glenn also reminded followers of the story that the U.S. repeatedly ruled the programs Snowden disclosed to readers were unconstitutional and illegal violations of Americans' privacy rights. Yeah, That's it's important a, to emphasize that because disgusting. that can get lost in all of these stories about um, you know whistleblowers, so-called Espionage Act, um, uh, people being prosecuted under the Espionage Act, that the fundamental leaks that they have, you know, that they enabled were so central to our contemporary understanding of how illegally the U.S. state operates against the interests of its own citizens. And sometimes the stories, I think there's been an active effort to make a lot of these stories about the individuals as opposed to what they mm -hmm. did. And I think that people like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald are right to not allow us to get away with that kind of revisionist history. Now, what is the actual status of his family? You were just looking that up before we started talking. What does that, because his wife and his children are, are with him currently. Yeah. So. so apparently, I mean, he already has um, permanent residency 
and Russia. Uh, and uh, the Times at least reports that um, this is a practical measure to give his family greater freedom crossing borders. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the, there have been some trips that he's taken to other countries, I guess, where there's not the same risk of extradition. And being a citizen, I suppose, makes it easier for him to to travel at the very least. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Well, we'll have to stay tuned about whether he's heading up to Ukraine. That's obviously <laughs> not going to happen, but that was our own State Department's framing of the issue. We'll have more Rising right after this. As always, stay with us. FBI agents arrested a pro-life activist last Friday for physically assaulting a man outside, allegedly physically assaulting a man outside of Planned Parenthood last year. So 48-year-old Mark Houck, who co-founded The King's Men, a Catholic organization that mentors young men, was taken into custody and charged for allegedly violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, which prohibits the use of force and intimidation against anyone who provides reproductive health care. Hook has a history of protesting outside abortion clinics. According to pro-life outlet LifeSite News, he drove two hours to two different abortion centers in Philadelphia every Wednesday to speak for hours on end. So it seems like the issue in this case is a dispute about who apparently pushed whom first. He's been accused of twice assaulting a man in his 70s who is the one that's brought suit and for violating laws that prevent you from interfering in people's right to going and access abortion clinics without being harassed. What do you make of it? Yeah, so uh, look, we don't know exactly what happened there. His wife said that their 12-year-old son was with Hauk and they were you know, preaching, engaged in anti-abortion political activity outside the, um, the clinic, and that a man um, came up to them and got very um, close to the, son, the, the literal words, was entered the son's personal space and started hurling insults and vulgarities at him, and Hauk shoved this man away from his son. This man tried to sue Hauk unsuccessfully, is I think kind of an activist from the other direction. Um, the, the, the uh, charge that Hauk violated this Access to Reproductive Clinics Act, um, that charge was thrown out over the summer, but now uh, the Justice Department has for some reason gotten involved. So I, basically, this seems like it was a kind of obscure local matter. I don't know why the, what the FBI has to do with it or why they raided his home. Would they, so they... I mean, it's dangerous when the FBI raids your home. I know you agree. Certainly. They showed up, tons of agents, guns drawn, and uh, they, he, tr- he said, you know, they showed up at the door and he tried to say, like, I, I'm, I will come out with my hands up. Please don't come into my house with my, he has a million kids, you know, with all your guns. They did anyway. Um, they, they did, you know, that whole thing. And, uh, and uh, I, I, look, I think it's pretty outrageous. I, it doesn't look to me like there's any underlying basis for this kind of behavior. Yeah, and FBI I think you should be able to, you, you are and should be allowed to protest outside abortion clinics. Well, within, if you don't violate the rules against it. I mean, I think there's a sensitivity to uh, this man's son seeing vulgarities or having his personal space violated. When these laws, of course, are there to protect women who are about to engage in or are considering a very sensitive medical procedure from being harassed and threatened in front of abortion clinics. We've obviously seen a number of abortion providers murdered in the United States of America, and we have seen um, a number of abortion facilities attacked and um, uh, uh, um, 
vandalized and bombed in the United States of America. So there's a reason these laws are in place, and I would just like for the people who have the same sensitivity about someone raising their voice or using expletives in front of a child have that same sensitivity about the women, many of them young women, who are trying to seek medical services at these kinds of clinics. Now, the piece about the FBI overreach, I think, is, is obviously, if as described, is an overreach. I did a radar and spoke extensively about how concerned I was about the African um, Socialist People Party's member being accused of um, being a non named as non um, indicted co-conspirator in some like Russian plot, and he was a seventy-something-year-old man who was marched out into the street, asked to sit on the curb at gunpoint by the FBI for the crime of being a socialist in a country that's supposed to be free. So obviously, I strongly disagree with the, the FBI being weaponized in these kinds of ways. But I also don't want to lose sight of the vulnerabilities, the, the conflicting vulnerabilities that exist in a situation like this. So one person brought his child to a protest, and it seems to like is maybe weaponized the vulnerability that that child was in as an excuse to have been in a position that somebody else found to be intimidating at an abortion clinic. And I hope that we can have sensitivities all around. People should stay outside of the zones that have been designated around abortion clinics and protest as they have the right to do. And also people should be sensitive to the reality of what people have to endure when they go and uh, pursue these activities. Right. Because, you know, to be clear, this this bill, it's federal. It's a federal law. It's not a bill. It's a federal law. The Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act um, it, it can't, it doesn't preempt the First Amendment. So it, 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 it cannot, and if it does, yeah, it's the, unconstitutional. The First, the First Amendment isn't a blanket right. Of course, we know that protests are all kinds of constraints on it. There are protest zones. There are um, free, you know, free speech zones. There have been a lot of limitations, especially under the Bush era. Well, those about are often where, struck down. Where and when you can protest, but they're not all struck down. There's there's limitations on your ability to incite people to have various kinds of behaviors. Donald Trump is very much in the middle of learning exactly what those lines are, but what you can and cannot say as people attempt to attribute some blame for uh, right. one six to him. So, but, uh, and, and, part, Supreme... and one of those one of those caveats is your inability to get too close to the entrances of some of these um, abortion clinics because there has been a great deal of intimidation that's happened to try to prevent people from accessing their legal right to choose. The Supreme Court ruled, I think, eight to one, right, that uh, that the Westboro Baptist Church type people can scream the most vile things at the funerals of yeah. military service people. But that's not the that's not the rule that's at issue here with these abortion clinics I'm, in particular. I'm saying the amount of the amount of uh, protected, harassing, awful, vile speech that is protected by the Supreme Court is is vast. So you you can you can say you can be outside an abortion clinic and you can, in quite strongly worded terms, object to what's going well, no, on there, there and make your. Objection. I'm sorry, my, my computer died, so I can't look it up. But there are, are limits to how close you can be to an abortion clinic, which apparently this person didn't violate because that aspect of the law was struck down. But the point I'm making is that quite obviously, as evidenced by the fact that there was a law here in this case, that he didn't violate, but which right. was an operation, you cannot have unlimited right, you do not have an unlimited right to stay and do whatever you want in front of an abortion clinic. I, I'm saying you should, you, your right to protest in front of an abortion clinic should not be constrained. I, don't, I mean, I'm looking at the exact language of the, it. It sounds to me like it's just saying things that would already be illegal you can't you can't intimidate someone you can't injure someone you can't interfere with you can't if someone is trying to get into the clinic you can't stand in their way um, all these things that would be illegal anyway it's making 
clear to people, I, I guess, additionally what their rights are, but it's not, it's not additional rights beyond the scope of the First Amendment. It's just the, it's just the rights that you have. No, my understanding is that there are specific rights about how close you can often protest to abortion clinics in particular. Um, just like there might be rules about how close you can come to circle someone's personal residence right, before yeah, it trips yeah. over into harassment. Well, right, but that's like not that. a special, that's a, that's, it's not a special only abortion clinics have. Well, no, this it's it's, it's, right. it's rules it's that have come out of litigation, particularly around all right. of the uh, harassment, um, physical attacks, murders that have happened to abortion providers and people who work in those kinds of clinics. What it sounds to me happened here, though, was a confrontation, not a particularly violent, there was a little shoving between two people, activists on two sides of this issue, who had some kind of confrontation. That's obviously a very heated subject. And that was that, and there doesn't need to be any further real criminal or investigative or any matter, but then the FBI has decided it should be a, a, an FBI issue, which I mean, is, is bad and speaks to, um, and I, you know, conservatives are realizing, they're learning, the FBI is, not, is no one's friend, and this is something to the left's credit that they've known for a very long time, something libertarians have known that conservatives have had to learn. Um, the, the, law, the, you know, the party of law enforcement is learning how, uh, how institutions of law enforcement um, can mistreat people of all sorts of political persuasions. Yeah. Of all, uh, and, and, the, and that the process, and it's not personal, like they're, the process of banging down people's doors, pointing guns at their children, dragging them out into the street is just how they do business. It's how top law enforcement agents agencies do often do business and it's bad and it's wrong and there yeah. needs to be reform of it and and maybe now we can all be on board with changing the way and not just the FBI but SWAT teams and things like that yeah and look people can go back and listen to my radar on my argument for why the FBI should be abolished and I hope that conservatives keep that energy up when we're talking about uh, the FBI infringing the right to the people it has historically infringed 85% of which uh, based on the study that I cited in that radar are are strongly on the left. But if so. we abolish the FBI, who will fail to catch the mass shooters? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. We'll have a rising for you right after this. A nefarious influence campaign is underway, <laughs> one propagated by the U.S. government on social media to influence other governments. How interesting this is, this report from the New York Times, uh, this article, the Pentagon orders review of its overseas social media campaigns. Uh, so the White House uh, is not happy about what the Pentagon has been doing, which is a secretive operation to influence populations overseas. The review follows a decision by Twitter and Facebook over the summer to shut down misleading accounts that they determined were sending messages about U.S. foreign policy interests abroad. Those were government accounts. <laughs> so let's let's get this straight. So the U.S. government mm -hmm. is using coordinated, inauthentic mm -hmm. uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts to influence politics in mm -hmm. other countries. Uh, one campaign, again, I'm reading from this New York Times article. It's a terrific article. One campaign targeting Iran spread divisive messages about life there. The account involved pushed out views that both supported and opposed the Iranian government. The disinformation effort resembled the methods used by Russia to influence the 2016 <laughs> U.S. presidential election. We're doing the thing. Yeah, We're so doing the thing. But this reminds me of that time someone tried to press uh, Trump on what some other government was doing, that Russia or China or something. It says, hey. We've got killers, too. A lot too. of killers, lot Bill. Of killers. That's my favorite Trump line. <laughs> A lot of killers, Bill. You think we're so innocent? Yes, it looks so 
often you get accused of doing both ciderism by pointing this kind of thing out. But the, it's one thing to say. This article could literally be called both sides. <laughs> right. I, it, it just is both sides. Because the reality is that the, the, mm-hmm. the U.S. government often frames what other governments do as evidence that they are not democracies, that they are constitutionally and as a nation inferior to the United States of America. And you can critique their behavior. But what so many people on the left are always trying to point out is that America is often doing much of the same thing. And so if you think it's bad, that's great. You also have to be critical of what's happening in our own country on the same on the same. Well, plane. I've been critical of uh, some Republicans who've been doing this, especially with social media companies. Mm. When they haul them, when they haul Zuckerberg and, and Dorsey and everyone else before Congress, and they start saying, you know, why are you bowing to Chinese censorship? By the way, here are the policies I want you to implement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. well, you're yelling at them for doing what the Chinese government wants, right. but now you, the U.S. government, are dictating them what you think they should do. Right. Like, right. let's let's be a little careful here. Right. Um, so th- this sounds like another and and for you know again, I, I don't want to come off as sounding like a shill for social media companies, but. They're in this weird position where they make everyone so mad, but here they are comb- here they are combing through the accounts, you know, identifying which are just like government actors <laughs> trying to fool everyone. And they're like, "Okay, guys, what are we? What do you want us to do? What are we supposed to do? You get mad when there's you know coordinated misinformation on our platforms, or when there's when there's inauthentic behavior. We get yelled at. We get screamed at." And you're doing it. Like, how are we supposed to handle this? Okay, I, I am speaking as if I'm them right now. Like, that, that's, a, that's a huge frustration. Yeah, I mean, look, friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, is pointing out how hypocritical all of this is, uh, saying, you know, in fact, if I'm reading this New York Times article correctly, these online Pentagon influence operations, quote, were similar to how Beijing often spreads disinformation and, quote, resembles the yeah. methods used by Russia to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The U.S. does this, too, he writes. So, I mean, this is really the core issue, that so many people, we just saw that African Socialist Party member scooped up by the FBI over this, accused of peddling Russian disinformation because he's been saying the same things about how the United States government has been unfair to black Americans since time immemorial. He says, he says I've, been, I've been talking about this since the Civil Rights Movement. How can you accuse me of doing Russian disinformation? Over and over again, you have guess there's always going to be people who put information out there, information that is oftentimes not especially novel, but picks up on themes that already exist and discontent that already exists in society. It doesn't make it right. I don't think that other pe- you know, people should generally be interfering with other people's governments either, either way. But when you see what the United States has been doing in the exact same vein, and when you see how vilified, we talked about Edward Snowden in an earlier segment, whistleblowers who have exposed behavior like this have been, how, how vilified they've been by the American government. The whole argument against Rus- Russian disinformation in 2016 being stolen and Democrats being consumed with Russiagate for the last four years completely falls mm-hmm. apart. No, absolutely. And, and to be clear, again, this is a serious both sides issue because there's also a report today from the Washington Post about a China-based network targeting American users on social media, on uh, on Meta, on Facebook, etc., where they were, so this covert influence operation used a accounts on Facebook and Instagram posing as Americans to post opinions about hot button issues such as abortion and and other people. Um, the network, which focused on the United States and Czech Republic, posted from the fall of 2021 through 2022. Um, 
which if they're doing, you know, whatever, if they're doing it on Facebook, this actually sounds a little bit like the rush, like how many people saw this? Who sure. cares? There's tons of political content on Facebook. It's not like, oh, I saw this one account about how, you know, Marco Rubio is bad. Right. And now I, like, it's R- Russians told dumb. me there's racism, so, so now, now I, I hate exactly. government. <laughs> However, the only thing I think that is worrying, it, it show, if China is, is doing this, well, China does have a social media app where it has very total control over mm-hmm. what the content would be in TikTok, mm. which is under the purview of the Chinese government. Mm. So there, I think they would have the power, if they so chose, mm. to exercise um, editorial control in a way that could actually be harmful mm. um, to U.S. interests. I mean, they, like, they could they could engage in a much more um, uh, robust kind of influence or censorship campaign on the on an app that is the most popular social media mm. site for U.S. Um, I think that's, that's part so of that's, why people have different. to get an education on how to identify, um, you know, I don't want to use the word fake news, but to have a more critical lens of our own media. This is something that is often the subject of a lot of, I'm sorry, graduate and, and college level Education, you're learn- part of what you learn in those kinds of contexts is how to be discerning about the enormous stream of media that comes your way, how to un- look at sources, how to understand graphs. This is an important part, I think, of the public education, regardless of whether or not you think everybody should go to college. This is- these are things that people need to learn for this kind of reason. And one lesson that I would point to that people should really be looking for is are these stories that force us to think negatively of each other? A lot of these these cultural stories are there to make us feel like our class allies are not, in fact, allies at all because they have a different opinion about trans people in sports or because they have a different opinion about some other cultural issue that, in all likelihood, unless you have a trans kid or a trans yourself, does not affect mm. you personally. So. It's not to say you shouldn't care about X, Y, and Z, that you shouldn't have your opinion one way or the other about the police or whatever the the issue is. But at the end of the day, is there a focus on whether or not you should hate your neighbor or is there a focus on whether or not you and your neighbor are both being screwed by people like Nancy Pelosi, who right now is is not able to gather the votes for a ban on Congress members doing insider trading. I guess I, I would hope that ideally some uh, some statistical literacy or literacy with like reading graphs and those things is that really a, a skill you can only pick up after you get into graduate no, when, school? No, whenever, whenever it happens. something our eighth graders are becoming literate at? However long it takes, it takes. But unfortunately, especially because of the delays of COVID, eighth graders are not understanding these things. Twelfth graders are not understanding these things, and it's not getting any easier. How are we supposed to teach them to read if they can't even fit inside the building? <laughs> Zoolander quote. Zoolander quote. More rising right after this. The United States has warned Russia that there will be catastrophic consequences if it uses nuclear weapons in its war with Ukraine. According to NBC News, this comes after Russian President Vladimir Putin issued renewed threats that he could resort to weapons of mass destruction. As he ordered partial militarization of Russia and supported a plan to annex occupied areas of Ukraine that are staging votes on whether or not to join Russia. But retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis said that just because Putin is escalating the conflict does not mean the U.S. should follow suit. Here to tell us more, senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, help us put into context, context rather, what the actual risk of some kind of nuclear uh, use, weapons use, is right now. You know, I think it's it's uncomfortably high. You know, I, I, I really believe that as a... Uh, published in a recent piece in 1945 that we've gotten so far away from 
August 1945, when the United States used nuclear weapons, that we've forgotten the extraordinary destructive power. And many of today's missiles are, are scores of times, hundreds of times more powerful than even those two weapons that were used there. And I think that we're too cavalier and too casual about talking about nuclear weapons today. And especially if we're talking about potentially amping up and ramping up nuclear discussions with Russia that could respond in a nuclear weapon being used on any American city city or, or, or American forces, I think is something we need to be very, very careful about. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, you would think that policymakers on all sides, Russian policymakers or government officials, the, the Putin's administration, the Ukrainian officials and U.S. officials would have this joint um, incentive to avoid at all costs even the kind of sloppy rhetoric that that moves in that direction. I, I probably, you know, I think what we're what many people are afraid of, right, is that you kind of accidentally, you know, accidentally escalate yourself into nuclear conflict, the, the likes of which uh, almost happened right in the in the Cuban Missile Crisis, for instance, where you have uh, brinkmanship, and then it gets out of out of control. Um, are our are our our officials doing enough to kind of quiet this sort of conversation? Well, it certainly doesn't seem so. I mean, you had uh, uh, Sullivan, you know, overtly talking about in public that there would be catastrophic results of if you, uh, Russia uses nuclear weapons, as you just mentioned there a second ago. And, and look, we have to take into consideration that right now, American national security interests are not threatened by anything that happens within Ukraine. That's just the truth of it. If you go up the escalation ladder and you get into nuclear weapons, now all of a sudden we could be the recipient of that. Or NATO countries could be the recipients of a, of a nuclear strike that does not need to happen. And so we can't say, and we must not do, in potential defense of, of Kiev and, and their, their national security, to put our own national security at risk when right now it's not. That would be the most irresponsible thing our government could do. Yeah, I think it's really important to put into context, you know, what the possible outcomes are here, because I think some people believe that, you know, the kind of mutually assured destruction detente will keep us safe, that nuclear weapons are so serious and so big that it's unlikely that, you know, Russia would actually act. But uh, Joseph Serentione just wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post titled, Putin says nuclear threat is no bluff. We should take him at his word. He's a kind of a nuclear expert. I've spoken to him on my own show, and he lays out a, a number of possible scenarios. He says one is a demonstration shot that a nuclear uh, um, uh, weapon could be fired over an uninhabited area like part of the Black Sea, but he thinks that's relatively unlikely precisely because it's too much of a bluff and doesn't cause enough harm. Then he offers that Russia could uh, uh, shoot a low-yield weapon, rather, at a Ukrainian military target. And this is something that I've spoken to him about in the past, how contemporary nuclear policy has been about making smaller and smaller nukes that are more and more plausible to use, as opposed to making bigger and bigger nukes that cause more and more destruction. And you could see that as one outcome. Or a large-yield weapon, which could attack, he says, a 50 or 100 kiloton range, three to six times uh, the Hiroshima bomb. And if the target were Kiev, it would decapitate Ukraine's leadership and trigger a direct U.S. or NATO re response. And then you mentioned this, the, the last option that he lays out here is a nuclear attack on NATO, which he says is the le least likely scenario. I mean, do you have any thoughts or feelings about what we are likely to see and whether or not talking about those kinds of um, potentialities might provoke the American public and American political leadership into taking this kind of threat more seriously? 
Yeah, I, I do think there's utility in that. Talking about it, does it give a chance to actually play these out in your mind to see what is the potential consequence for the United States and for our, our citizens and our country? But one thing we have to keep at the very fore of our understanding here is that Putin has absolutely gone all in on this war. His very uh, his regime and possibly his life are at stake here if this thing doesn't work. So he is in a potentially desperate situation, and someone who's a desperate and has a nuclear button is much more threatening than the United States, who's not threatened. So we should not risk a nuclear escalation when our security is not a threat. Because just imagine how foolish that would be to say the United States right now is very secure. There's nothing that threatens our security. And then we take action that could prompt a missile from a desperate despot onto American targets. I mean, that we just can't do that. I cannot reiterate that strongly enough. There's nothing at stake over there that's worth losing an American city. Hmm. So quickly, before we have to go, what should we do then to wind this war down without just, you know, giving Putin some massive boon, you know, for his for his own survival? Because uh, it, it, it feels despite us you know, all wanting this war to come to an end, I can I understand people who are, I think, more um, willing to commit U.S. resources to this conflict. But, and I'm, I'm not willing, I'm, but speaking for them, I, I think what they would say is, well, th- this is not, we, we can't allow this to be the case where because Putin feels threatened, even though we think, we, we I honestly think it would probably be better if he was deposed, but we're so afraid of the consequences that he might do something crazy, we just have to let him do whatever he wants. That that becomes very unsatisfying from a policy standpoint, which is, I think, how people argue themselves into into agreeing to a more robust involvement. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I'll tell you what's also unsatisfying is, is America getting sucked into a war it should never fight. And the, the hard truth is that we cannot do anything that's going to draw us into a war. And, and look, we also have to recognize that, that Russia has been exposed as being far less capable conventionally than anyone ever thought before. So the idea that they would be even a possible risk of attacking a NATO country conventionally or nuclear weapons is just absurd on this on the face of it, because there it's not even clear they're going to be able to win the the 15 percent or so of Ukraine territory they hold today. Hmm. So recognizing that our security is not a threat conventionally, our NATO allies are not a threat conventionally should tell us that we need to make sure that this can, stays contained. And if that's unsatisfying, then so be it. But it doesn't draw us into a, into a war, and it uh, accomplishes our government's primary objective, which is to keep us safe and our economic potentials on the table for good. Hmm. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for joining us today. Always my pleasure. Thank you. We'll have more rising right after this. We have some breaking news on the Stock Act, which would be the bill to limit the extent to which political actors, congressmen, judges, etc., can play the stock game. Uh, the, are, there are details of what the bill would look like available by Punchbowl News, but the, I think the headline here is it's unlikely that it would ever even come to a vote because, according to this news report, a number of rank-and-file Democrats are, quote, actively opposed, <laughs> according to the source. And then, of course, uh, the, the Republicans are regrettably almost universally opposed as well. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> well, what do you know it? Uh, uh, political figures, who says bipartisanship right. is dead? Happy to come together to 
through thwart efforts to prevent them from uh, profiting off the knowledge they have. Yeah, like this is perhaps a little unsurprising given that, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi had that famous moment um, when she was asked about this last year and she said, no, 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 uh, Congress members shouldn't be banned from owning individual stocks because we are, quote, a free market economy. She's obviously someone with enormous wealth who has been accused, her husband has been accused of making uh, stock trades based on insider information that she is obviously privy to as the highest ranking <laughs> Democrat in the House. And it's extraordinary that they can publicly crow about how the Democratic Party is against corruption and we're going to pass this act. We have control of the House and the Senate and the, and the White House, and we are going to pass an act that prevents Congress members from trading on insider information and then not even be able to marshal the votes to pass it after kind of finally making the admission that this is a real problem. Yeah. It's disgusting. But we never really believed them that they were actually going to do this, that they cared. Um, hilariously, I'm sure if you polled the average American, this would poll so well. You would get, you would get like virtually all Democrats, Republicans, independents, conservatives, liberal, the left, everyone would say, the, centrists, everyone is going to say, unless you're maybe a stockbroker or something, <laughs> everyone's going to say, this is, this is an easy thing to take this power yeah. away. So the bill, uh, if it did get voted on, it, it's not going to, but it would be pretty expansive. It would apply to members of Congress, their spouses, also their children, senior aides, federal judges, including the Supreme Court, and senior executive branch officials. That was what the bill was purporting Which, to do. Which, by the way, everyone else has to do. If you work for a bank, if you work for a law firm, if you are privy to this kind of information, you are already precluded from doing exactly this. Truly in the world of kind of broad corporate government access, Congress is the standout actor <laughs> who doesn't have to play by the same kind of rules as we completely understand need to be in, in place so that, you know, the, the president of J.P. Morgan or whatever that's marshalling some merger doesn't make out like right. a king from the from the, the very merger that he is planning. They're, they're privy to this similar or so, kind of information. Or so a senator doesn't walk out of a meeting about... Uh, uh, what, what's going to happen with COVID before COVID is big news right. and immediately go and sell off stocks or buy stocks in Pfizer, right. whatever, which is exactly what exactly happened. What happened. senator did do that. So this was <laughs> Senator Burr in early yes. 2020. Unsealed FBI docs revealed a flurry of calls and stock trades by him um, right before the coronavirus. You know, we were yes. all notified broadly of, of the scale and scope of the, of the COVID before virus. Telling, before you tell your constituents, of the crisis, of the deadly disease that is about to tear across this country, killing hundreds of thousands of people, your first call is to, your to, to get your stocks in order. <laughs> yeah, it's really unconscionable. I'd love to see how Democrats defend this. I hope this is a story that uh, circulates more broadly, because this is a moment for the actual progressives in Congress to shine, and the principled conservatives, by the way, that are genuine populists, to shine and call out corrupt leadership that is more invested in their stock portfolio than decoupling themselves from the, the from um, having their personal interests interfere with the interests of the American people, because that's really the problem here. On one level, yes, we don't want people enriching themselves based on insider information, but the more central problem here is the risk 
that because one policy or another, one law or another may personally benefit yeah. various elected officials, that they are going to start making decisions in their own personal interests as opposed to the right. interests of the people who elected them. Yeah, I, this would be an even bigger problem if Congress was doing more of its job of legislating, but uh, <laughs> the, the legislative function of Congress has been so passed off to agencies and uh, and the executive, although they also have uh, some you know senior yeah. uh, officials would also be uh, covered by this. I mean, judges would be covered by this. They're the ones doing all the lawmaking these days. Yeah, as well they should, funny, as funny they should be. Not that they should be doing the lawmaking, right. but they should be covered by, by this. Right. Imagine if Congress was actually the one responsible for, like, imagine the pharmaceutical industry's input on public policy. If Congress, rather than just the president, was actually the one responsible for, <laughs> like, vaccine mandates or something, you could see how a congressperson who has stock in Pfizer yes. uh, might might vote uh, differently on that or against the you know wishes of constituents or yes. something like that. And that's a really good point. Someone raised this to me on my Colin show last night, how the fact of even even if there isn't particular corruption in a given instance, the possibility of corruption, the fact that we all know that it exists, the fact that we know how much lobbying happens with respect to the pharmaceutical industry has really contributed to the climate of mistrust around things like vaccines and policies in the CDC. So some of it is their actual bad behavior. And some of it is the imprimatur of corruption that comes with having systems that are so easily infiltrated. And that 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 ambiguity, I, I mean, I feel that, you know, is you know, the Biden administration really advising a booster campaign over, you know, once a year for the rest of your life because that's the, what's medically indicated? Is it because that's something that is advantageous for pharmaceutical right. companies? You know, both can be true. It can be the right thing to do and, you know, profitable for a pharmaceutical company. But when we have a country where that profit and that corruption is underlying every single thing, it makes people, I think, rightly skeptical of what they can and cannot trust. Absolutely. Which, of course, I'm going to flip into an argument for Medicare for all and getting the profit motive completely out of our health care, but can be, you know, understood as a problem, even if that's not your political bag. Well, I think we're going to talk about boosters and COVID next. So we'll take a brief pause and we'll come back with more rising in just a minute. Pfizer wants the Food and Drug Administration to authorize the Omicron booster shot for kids ages 5 to 11. The company submitted an application to the FDA seeking the authorization of its bivalent COVID booster shot for children in this age category. According to The Hill, Pfizer's bivalent boosters currently only authorized for use in those 12 and older. Now, per the report, this request comes only days after Moderna requested FDA authorization to administer its updated Omicron booster to children as young as six. NBC reports at least 4.4 million people have received an updated COVID booster since the start of September, according to data released last week by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That number represents only around 1.5% of people currently eligible to receive the shots in the United States. However, the CDC said the data does not include people who received updated Pfizer BioNTech boosters in Idaho and Texas. So it's interesting, right? You know, there is a, an effort to make the boosters more accessible. And certainly there are people who probably have children in the groups for which the booster is not currently authorized who want to get that. However, the numbers of people overall who seem to be availing themselves of the booster is relatively low. And I'm curious whether or not this is an indictment of kind of the Biden administration's messaging around the efficacy of boosters or whether it's a 
scientifically backed and sincere understanding of the limited application of boosters for a lot of folks who have already gotten COVID, had COVID recently, and in fact, maybe recommended against getting boosters because they have had COVID so recently. Right, because it's too recent to their uh, protection. That's why I initially didn't get uh, the booster because I'd had COVID, I'd had Delta about, um, you know, four or five months after getting my, my initial shots. So then I put off uh, getting a booster. I am, I am going to get one um, tonight. I'm getting the bivalent shot. Um, a lot of people ask, a lot of people, uh, comments, people have messaged me saying, you know, what is your, because uh, I, I said on the show yesterday mm-hmm. that I was going to get it. And uh, I saw a lot of, like, RIP Robbie, the <laughs> die of myocarditis. Um, but l- look, I, I think for myself, I'm prone to respiratory um, illnesses. I've, you've seen me this summer. I've been, I've been ill a lot. Mm. And so I, I absolutely a- agree and understand with things, uh, things that people we've had on the show have said, like David Zweig, saying that, you know, if you look, you're not seeing in the data a, a, a tremendous benefit here, uh, nor really a tremendous harm, though. I, I don't expect that it is going to make me any less likely to contract um, Omicron. And maybe it's not going to have much of an effect, but I don't see really, I don't think there's really a risk of it for me. So if there's even a small chance that when I do get Omicron, I will be a little less sick than Mm -hmm. I would be otherwise, I feel like I I will make that choice given that I I have to show up to this job every (laughs) single day. I got to sit in this chair next to you. Um, We got to power through it when we're not feeling well. Really, my priority is to to be sick for the shortest amount of time. Again, I'm not I, I am not saying that this absolutely accomplishes that, but uh, I would I would I would take that chance in the same way that I'll get the flu shot uh, and I'm getting the flu shot as well. Hero stuff, do. Robbie. So I, I for one appreciate thinking. the solidarity. It's really for you, Brian. It's really for you. <laughs> I, it's the best All gift I you could have ever given, <laughs> given to me, Robbie. But look, it is a really interesting thing because I was talking to some folks uh, who had called into my call-in show last night who were uh, healthcare professionals, and they they were. It was an interesting conversation because, from their perspective, you know, they see the shifts again, you know, away from masking, voluntary masking, even among people who might have philosophically supported a mask mandate themselves are eating inside, you know, there's less cultural pressure to mask. I feel it myself. Eating inside though, the audacity. No, I mean, <laughs> but no, I, I know. You I, know, I like the, it, yeah. the, the inconsistency yeah. of having eating, eating inside has made people think, well, if I just sat in this restaurant, then why would I mask later in an Uber or an elevator or wherever, wherever else? And I think that that is both you know, understandable and also not necessarily scientifically valid. You know, if you did just eat in a restaurant, maybe it is good for you to be masking in a space in an in in enclosed public space with someone else who has been taking different kinds of precautions or also just because you, you know, may took a risk in one place doesn't mean you should just serialize that risk as though that they don't accumulate over time. Your exposure doesn't accumulate over number of risk-taking behaviors you engage in. But what he was saying was, what two of them were saying was, they are seeing rising rates of COVID in the hospitals and rising rates of people who, they, one person in particular said that the, their experience of Omicron wasn't that it was less hmm. uh, fatal, less lethal, that they were seeing a lot of really um, dramatic cases even now. And the, I, was, I was reflecting on how so much of the rhetoric earlier in the pandemic was about, well, okay, even if, even if you don't care about getting COVID, you don't want to get so sick that you are burdening our healthcare professionals. And so much of that rhetoric has largely dissipated. And I wonder, you know, what you make of that. And if if we really did see a demonstration of hospitalizations rising in a way that was clearly putting a damper on our 
our, our public health system, whether that would affect your feelings about whether or not masking was appropriate outside of the context of a literal mask mandate. Sure. Well, I, that was the argument that persuaded me for the for the initial shutdown of yeah. everything. The health officials said, you know what, we are just not prepared for this, and we're uh, our hospitals are about to become overwhelmed. Yeah. And you know, once we have something in place to deal with this, um, th then it'll be different. Uh, so it was really the preventing of hospitals from being overwhelmed, from having to do triage care, where yeah. you're making, where doctors are making like split second decisions about who is is worth saving. That was the argument. That actually, even even more than you know, people are going to die because yeah. obviously we weren't going to do this. For, people were going to die of this. It was uh, not preventable. Uh, the the hospitals being overcrowded was the argument for having a broad uh, temporary shutdown of society. So yes, I, I think uh, I, I think certainly hospitals being overrun is you know a, a good argument, a good indication of the pandemic not being over. Now my understanding, however, though, is that in most places the overwhelming amount of places the hospitals are not being overrun there some some places when they're, they're experiencing more serious outbreaks are experiencing upticks in cases uh, of, of, in of the like hospital things but like high nurse turnover uh, the the nursing deficits that we've seen they're struggling to get people to seemingly to stay in these jobs and they cite the conditions that they're in I mean, what well, do you make of that? Well, is that a is that a COVID thing though? Is that that's burnout from dealing with COVID patients? I think from... that that's a big part of it. Now, I would certainly advocate for nurses to have broader support, right. even outside of the context of COVID. They were overburdened and, and uh, understaffed and things like that. But in their telling, the COVID pandemic, the lack of support, the incredible hours, the lack of pay, it has has taken. I also a think we're, we're see, we now see a lot of people um, because. Omicron is so contagious and so transmissible. You do, and I, I, I'm not trying to say it doesn't cause severe disease sometimes because it does. But we do see more people who are being who are hospitalized for some reason, and then it turns out that they have COVID because it's so much sure. more likely to just have COVID, where it's not really the primary reason for them. Sure, that, it's, it's incidental that to them. Yeah. Uh, also, we want to discuss some interesting data. So there's new data now showing that infants ages between zero and five months have joined a, a relatively higher risk category for COVID-related hospitalization. So you can see this interesting graph here over time. Um, so the, t the very top, the green line, is the most at risk people. That's 65 and older. But, but by the end of the graph, um, the the zero to six months group is is in the third most category. So they're they're more at risk, more likely to be hospitalized than people I, I believe like ages one to fifty. Mm -hmm. And then and then people older than that are still are still more at risk. If you look at some of the other graphs, part of it is that the risk for uh, for the elderly has come down substantially. Mm, so it can look like as that risk shrinks, it gets more proximate to the risk for all other groups. Mm -hmm. because, and it, but it, it's still a good thing because it's just an equally low risk. Mm -hmm. But among that lower risk, now there, there have been, which I imagine is a couple standout cases. I, I really don't, don't know what's going on there. Um, mm -hmm. It'd be important to take a closer look at it because that would be scary. You know, obviously that's people's yeah. babies. That's, um, yeah. that's, a, that's a group that... Um, can't get vaccinated. Right. I, I don't think under any vaccine uh, paradigm. Um, so, so definitely something something to look out for. Yeah. Well, we will be keeping an eye on that and other emerging COVID trends. Uh, and tomorrow on Rising, we'll have even more incredible content for you. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of it. And for those who like to listen on the go, we're now available anywhere that you consume podcast and podcast-related content. And we will see you all back here tomorrow again, unless I 
<laughs> Unless the, the vaccine takes me out, <laughs> then uh, everyone, everyone can say they were right. We'll Don't see. even put that out into the ether, Robbie. You'll be fine. <laughs> see right. y'all tomorrow. See you.